so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Hey, welcome to the show. I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders here on the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. So glad that uh, you could be part of this uh, engaged audience, people paying attention to what's going on around them instead of just, you know, passively watching it, shrugging their shoulders and going, eh, there's nothing I can do about it. Obviously, you are a doer, and I hope to give you some great uh, philosophical ammunition so that you can get back to whatever it is that you are doing. And I want to start with just a very short video. Uh, this will just be the audio portion of the video, obviously. But I want you to uh, to hear something being said by Senator Rand Paul. And as I play this, I want you to ask yourself, when is the last time you heard anyone in public office speak like this? Are you ready? Okay, here is Senator Rand Paul speaking about the crossroads where we find ourselves. And he doesn't mince words. It's time for us to resist. They can't arrest all of us. They can't keep all of your kids home from school. They can't keep every government building closed, although I've got a long list of ones they might keep closed or might ought to keep closed. We don't have to accept the mandates, lockdowns, and harmful policies of the petty tyrants and bureaucrats. We can simply say no. Not again. Nancy Pelosi, you will not arrest or stop me or anyone on my staff from doing our jobs. We have either had COVID, had the vaccine, or been offered the vaccine. We will make our own health choices. We will not show you a passport. We will not wear a mask. We will not be forced into random screenings and testings so you can continue your drunk with power reign over the Capitol. President Biden, We will not accept your agency's mandates or your reported moves towards a lockdown. No one should follow the CDC's anti-science mask mandates. And if you want to shut down federal agencies again, some of which aren't even back to work yet, I will stop every bill coming through the Senate with an amendment to cut their funding if they don't come back to work in person. Local bureaucrats and union bosses We will not allow you to do more harm to our children again this year. Children are not at any more risk from COVID than they are from the seasonal flu. Every adult who works in schools has either had the vaccine or had their chance to get vaccinated. There is no reason for mask mandates, part-time schools, or any lockdown measures. Children are falling behind in school and are being harmed physically and psychologically by the tactics that you have used to keep them from the classroom during the last year. We won't allow it again. If a school system attempts to keep children from full-time in-person school, I will hold up every bill with two amendments, one to defund them and another to allow parents the choice 
or where the money goes for their child's education. Do I sound fed up to you? That's because I am. I'm not a career politician. I practiced medicine for 33 years. I graduated from Duke Medical School. I've worked in emergency rooms. I've studied immunology and virology. And I ultimately chose to become an eye surgeon. I've been telling everyone for a year now that Dr. Fauci and other public health bureaucrats were not following the science. And I've been proven right time and time again. But I'm not the only one who's fed up. I can't go anywhere these days without people coming up and thanking me for standing up for them, whether I'm at work or at events in Kentucky, at airports, in restaurants, or in stores. People thank me for taking a stand. They thank me for standing up for actual science, for standing up for freedom, for standing against mandates, lockdowns, and bureaucratic power grabs. I think the tide is turning as more and more people are willing to stand up. I see stories from across the country of parents standing up to the unions and school boards. I see brave moms standing up and saying, my kids need to go back to school in person. I see members of Congress refusing to comply with petty tyrant Pelosi. We are at a moment of truth and a crossroads. Will we allow these people to use fear and propaganda to do further harm to our society, economy, and children? Or will we stand together and say, absolutely not, not this time, I choose freedom? Wow. I don't know about you, but uh, that's how I can tell things are getting serious. When a sitting U.S. senator is saying the exact words, we will not comply, it is time to resist, it is time to fight back. Holy cow. No, I'm guessing it probably hasn't caught you unawares, right? This isn't like, what? I just woke up this morning. There's a there's a COVID virus? What? Who tell me about it? No, we've, we've seen this coming for some time. In fact, you know, a lot of voices have been warning about this for quite some time. But it's disturbing how few people seem to be able to recognize what is staring us in the face. And I'm not trying to sound superior to them. Okay, because there's there's a lot of stuff I just don't know. There's a lot of things about which I'm totally in the dark. And and every one of us should have the humility to admit, you know, when we don't know something. But we've been watching this come with with it's been so openly broadcast, so telegraphed to us. We're going to lock it down again. We're going to we're going to have to take away what what little freedoms you have unless you do what you're told. And right now, that's the actual language that is being used by some elected leaders. Did you hear Maryland's governor last week speaking to the unvaccinated? We have to take away freedoms because you won't do what you're told. Oh, my word. What elected leader talks to the people who elected them in that tone? Certainly not someone who recognizes themselves as a servant of the people, but instead someone who is, I don't know, flexing their little dictatorial muscles for us. I saw an article the other day that I thought was worth sharing with you, if for no other reason, it sums up why all the persuasion about, come on, this is not such a big thing, it's just a piece of cloth, put it on your face, it's just a vaccination, everybody's doing it. Every time some concern is brought up and it's minimized by, it's just for two weeks. Well, there's a writer by the name of Addison Reeves who writes for OffGuardian.org. I don't know if you checked this website out before. There's another writer on there by the name of C.J. Hopkins. Really like his take on stuff. Both of these writers, very straightforward. But I want you to listen closely to how Addison Reeves describes 
all the justifications that we are given by those who think that this is necessary. And I don't know if it's that they don't recognize that we are leading directly into authoritarian and a totalitarian approach to, to governance, or if it's something they just don't want to see. Like, do they have tunnel vision? Has coronavirus affected their eyes to where they only can see through that lens of fear? Now, again, I'm not saying this because I'm so much better than them. I can see. I'm just saying people do weird things when they're fearful. Mass psychosis is possible when people are fearful. And we're seeing it happen. So listen to the words of Addison Reeves. It's just why I won't submit. I'll warn you right now, there's some colorful language in the article itself. He says, it's just two weeks. It's just staying three feet apart. It's just staying six feet apart. It's just not going outside. It's just not giving handshakes. It's just working from home. It is just non-essential businesses that are closed. It's just bars. It's just restaurants. It's just theaters. It's just concerts. It's just dancing. It's just intramural sports. It's just choir. It's just non-essential medical services that you have to give up. It's just non-essential items that you're not allowed to buy. It's just not being able to exercise. It's just gyms. It's just the closure of your business for a while. It is just not making money for a while. It is just not being able to pay your bills for a little while. It's just a minor inconvenience. It's just not being allowed to carpool. It's just not socializing for a while. It's just a mask. It's just not traveling for a while. It's just not hugging people for a while. It's just not seeing your family and friends for a while. It's just not visiting your grandparents temporarily. It's just your grandparents not having visitors for their safety. It's just one birthday you have to sacrifice. It's just one Thanksgiving alone. It's just one Christmas without your family. It's just two birthdays you had to sacrifice. It is just not celebrating any milestones for a year and a half. It's just temporary. It's just a safety measure. It is just your ability to pay cash. It is just contact tracing. It is just a health screening. It's just a temperature check. It is just a scan of your face. It's just a minor loss of privacy. It is just one semester. It is just two semesters. It is just one year out of your child's life. It's just one more semester. It's just a high school graduation. It's just the birth of your grandchild that you missed. It is just not being able to be there for your relatives when they are ill or dying. It is just not having a funeral. It is just in person that you cannot grieve with your loved ones. It is just not getting to attend religious service. It is just not getting to practice some parts of your religion. It's just misinformation that's being censored. It's just conservatives that are being censored. It is just some of the science that's being censored. It is just the people who have the opposing opinions that are banned online. It is just the opposition that the White House is targeting for censorship. It is just bad opinions that are being censored. It's just the economy. It is just small business owners who are suffering financially. It is just poor people who are suffering financially. It is just people of color who are suffering financially. It's just financial suffering. 
It's just a few small businesses that had to close permanently. It's just a few big businesses that closed. It's just not going farther than a few kilometers from your house. It's just a curfew. It's just a permission slip. It is just being alone for two weeks. It is just being socially isolated for one year. It's just one vaccine. It's just one set of booster shots. It's just regular booster shots every six months. It is just another two weeks. It's just one more lockdown. It's just once a week, twice, tops, that you'll have to prove you're fit to participate in society. It's just the unvaccinated that will be segregated from society. It's just a medical test. Pretty simple, huh? Just freaking do it. But Addison Reeves says when you add up all the justs, it amounts to our entire lives. For over a year and a half and counting, he says, we've been robbed of the ability to live our lives fully, to make meaningful choices for ourselves, and to express our values the way we see fit. Is it just the inability to express our humanity and the total negation of our... It is just the inability to express our humanity and the total negation of our very selves. All of these measures, he says, have served as a prohibition of outwardly expressing one's valid and complex internal reality. His point is, this kind of suppression of self does violence to one's very soul. And all of these supposedly little and supposedly short-lived justs have transformed us into totalitarian states from which there appears to be no endpoint. In New York City, California, Australia, etc., the people have permitted government such control over our daily lives that we have to ask it for permission to control our bodies, to move freely, to practice religion to educate our children, ourselves, to protest, etc. Soon Biden, Trudeau, and other world leaders are going to clamp down on our ability to express ourselves and to associate with each other online so that we can no longer question, object to, or organize against government action. It is the destruction of democracy. He says, It astounds me that my progressive friends, the same ones who claim to support social justice, are welcoming a fascist society in which government crushes any opposition and individuals cannot make choices about their own lives. And then he gets into the meat of why he will not comply. Addison Reeves says, I will not comply because I do not want to live in the society that is being created by extraordinary submissiveness to government. I do not want to be complicit in this era's atrocities. What is the point of living if one merely exists to obey the elite to one's own detriment? Is it even living if one lacks the agency to direct one's life? I've already submitted in contradiction of my values to a shameful extent, he says. One might say, well, then what's one more compromise? But it won't be just one more compromise. It will just be the next cut in a slow death of a thousand cuts. Submitting only validates tyrannical displays of power and ensures that there will be more such displays in the future. And what does one get for compromising? Well, merely your continued membership in a society that will only have you if you immolate yourself and become nothing more than a reflection of the desires of the ruling class. If you cannot truly be yourself in a society, is that society worth clinging to? I think not. As much as leaving the stability of my comfort zone terrifies me, staying in it means continuing to silence and shrink myself for a disingenuous feeling of acceptance. 
and that way it's more of a discomfort zone. Addison Reeves says, Each time I expressed my fears about the future direction of society, my friends said, It won't happen. And each time it did happen, they shrugged their shoulders and reminded me, Well, compliance is an option. At this point, if the government were to cart me away to an internment camp, which, by the way, is not a completely far-fetched notion, and which has happened in the past, for being a dangerous dissident, he says, I'm certain that my friends and family would watch it happen and would say it was my fault for not complying. They're no longer capable of recognizing the humanity of the opposition or of questioning government. And so he says, I will not submit because I don't want to live in a world in which my supposed allies would happily see me persecuted by the government. He says, I will not comply because the political climate has become so sensorial, authoritarian, and generally toxic that my viewpoints will never be represented in the political process here. Without representation, my values and beliefs will be violated again and again by a polity that sees any deviation from itself as invalid. Thus, my compliance will provide zero assurance of any better treatment in the future. And so he says, I will not bend because I am not a conformist. I will not give in because I do not want to reward government manipulation and coercion. I will not surrender because I could die at any moment. And I do not want my final memories to be ones of craven submission to tyranny and the resultant misery and self-loathing. That's a really powerful line, by the way. I will not comply because it is not the government's first intrusion on my body, mind, and spirit. And if we comply, it will definitely not be the last. All I will accomplish by my compliance is validating the government's claim on my body and life. He says, I'm not submitting to this because I'm not submitting because this is war and I'm not handing the enemy its victories. I will not comply because the reward for compliance will still be being treated as a second-class citizen by society. I won't acquiesce because I am a conscientious objector. I will not cede because the measures are unnecessary and the only practical effect will be to increase government power. I don't comply because I do not want to be a mere slave in the future version of the world they are creating doing only what I'm told to do and having to beg for access to the necessities of life that I am entitled to as a living being on this earth. I will not yield because their religion is not my religion and I refuse to worship a false idol. I will not capitulate because I do not want to betray my ancestors and predecessors who fought for me to be free. I will not surrender because freedom is more important than convenience and ease. Addison Reeves says, I will not comply because if I did, I would be filled with rage against society, resentment toward my friends and family, and self-loathing that would eat me alive. I would become bitter and closed-hearted, and I don't want that for myself. All of this is why I won't just freaking do it. I know, the first time I read that out loud, I was like, wow, low whistle. That is, (laughs) that's pretty strong words. And, and I don't want to overplay the drama, okay? We have enough drama in our lives. We don't need to go around creating more. But are you getting the picture? Are you starting to understand the battle that some of us have anticipated? May not be, you know, fighting in the streets, but it's a battle nonetheless, and it has begun. 
and it's starting slowly, and I don't know what it's going to lead to. But everybody has got to make a choice. Will I comply or won't I comply? That's the choice sitting squarely in front of every single one of us. Now, the cool thing about this is I can't answer that for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm not the one who can tell you. All right, so here's the way that I figure it. But I think I will take some advice from uh, Isaac Morehouse. He is uh, one of the founders of... Shoot, it just left my mind. He's, uh, he's one of the, the founders of a, a very innovative educational system that eschews college um, in favor of just going in as an intern and getting direct experience. And I am so sorry. I should have had the name right there in front of me. Let me take a quick look and see if I can get a prompt here. Yeah, Praxis. That's, sorry. Whew. Old age. He's the founder and CEO of Praxis. Listen to his advice here. He says, stop looking for a king. Now, this could apply to more than politics, but hear him out. He says, populism is a mess. Constitutional attempts to restrict it are weak. To quote Mises, the planned chaos of governments is taking a toll. A lot of people seem to be searching more ancient traditions for sense and stability. They long for a clearly structured world that harmonizes with the hierarchies in nature and human nature. Some of them long for a king. Now, he says, I respect the sentiment, but it eats its own tail. Understanding the problems of democracies and bureaucratically managed populist programs is important. More voices having a stake in controlling others is not an effective way to curb control of others. It only feeds and fragments it. He says, I appreciate the recognition of relative aspects of of objective aspects, rather, of reality. As Thomas Sowell might say, we need a constrained vision that recognizes realities like scarcity, ignorance, and natural human desires. But we cannot wish away bad things or bad people. We cannot wish away differences between people, even those that seem to create uncomfortable inequalities in the outcomes of their lives. To do so is not only inhumane, it's diluted. It can't succeed. And running counter the structure of reality will only end in more pain than what you seek to solve. Now he says, I don't disagree with the ideas of regality. The idea of being a noble being with authority, respect, responsibility and dominion, but where it's misguided is when it seeks to find this in any earthly being outside of oneself. Now listen to this next part. The calling of a human is to be and become that king, to provide the kind of leadership and structure to your family and voluntary relationships that you are the earthly king of your own mind, body, spirit, and domain. To see this in another human is to abdicate your own duties and responsibilities. That's the same folly that would-be kingmakers see in the populist mobs. You cannot outsource your reign. You must find how to properly align it with God, other people, and reality. It's It's too easy to see the truth in the pattern of kingship and miss the application of that pattern. The pap, the pattern rather, he says, maps onto you, not anyone else. So let me translate that as best I can into what we're talking about here in terms of, you know, will I comply with the the vaccine? Will I comply with the lockdowns, the masking, and so forth? You have to be the sovereign of your own mind, body, spirit, and domain. Dr. Fauci can't do it for you. Your governor cannot do it for you. Whoever the appointed director of health is for your state or your county or your city, they can't do it either. And and to be fair, not all of them are, are trying to. 
for every Anthony Fauci out there who is using this, you know, for their own personal aggrandizement or their own um, sense of power seeking. There are a lot of people who I think are sincerely trying to do their best, but there's also a very cult-like collective mentality that has crept in where anyone or anything that does not fit or go along with the narrative is considered dangerous. Like, put them in a camp kind of dangerous. It's a little bit scary to see that kind of talk coming right out in the open. My point is simply this. You have a decision to make. I can't make it for you. But just know that if you decide, I'm going to stand up for my own autonomy and my own personal freedom, you most certainly are not alone. This is the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders on the America Out Loud Network. Because of COVID-19, the average American worries about their immune health four times a day. That's 112 times per year. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains 15 full doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day pill-free gel pack. It tastes great, is convenient on the go, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. The America Out Loud family is comprised of patriots in the true sense of the word. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty and the Constitution to help save America for future generations to come. AmericaOutloud.com It's a fight for the soul of humanity. You are listening to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders. And this is the America Out Loud Network. So welcome back. Segment two of the show today. Now, this may seem like an odd place to start, but uh, since we ended the last segment talking about, you know, the, the being the, the king that you need in your life, right? The person to rule your life. Nobody is better qualified than you. It made me think of a recent article I saw from Jeff Minnick, published on intellectualtakeout.org. And the, this is, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I just want to make that clear. So there's no guilt being wielded here. <laughs> it's okay. I don't want anybody to feel defensive. But the question he poses is, does social media and our ever-present smartphones create a culture of egocentric people? I think that's a fair question. In fact, Jeff Minnick kind of points to egotism as the root of our troubles. 
And that's enough to make me stop and think, well, now, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, is it is it uh, is there something about that selfie culture that makes it so hard for us to to keep ourselves straight without becoming, you know, so caught up in what's going on around us that that, that we we really believe, you know, our own press releases. It's all about me. Look, snap, there's a picture of my food. Here's a picture of my perfect life. The problem is, if everything is about us, sometimes that can make us treat other people as less. Now, he starts with a with he starts his article here. It's titled Death by Selfie. Egotism is the root of our troubles. And Jeff Minnick writes, in an article at the Daily Wire, Joseph Curl reports that a 23-year-old Chinese crane operator, Xiao Kumi, who had 100,000 followers on social media, fell 160 feet to her death while filming herself on a giant crane. She was the second woman to die in China in July by way of a fall while recording herself on camera. And he says, this horrific death set me to thinking about selfies. But he says, I don't mean the kind of pictures we take of ourselves with our cameras and phones. He says, I'm coining a new term, a noun, for a certain type of self-obsessed people. Have we become a world of selfies? And Jeff Minnick says, well, the United States especially seems to be a nation that's overpopulated by egocentric system, or egocentric citizens, rather. Does our selfiness explain the arrogance we see in some people today? A conceit accompanied by contempt for others? And those questions, of course, brought more questions like, if it's true that too many people are selfies, looking down their noses at others or those they regard as inferiors, could that high opinion of themselves explain the erosion, some might say the death, of our liberties and our culture? In fact, he says, perhaps it's time for some of our politicians, bureaucrats, and celebrities to check their egos at the door and focus instead on honesty, truth, and cooperation as a way of solving problems. Now, he says, many of our celebrities and politicians certainly appear to belong to the selfie tribe. Their massive egos, self-promotion, and the fierce belief that their ideas trump those of the supposedly illiterate masses are the very definition of narcissism. Our long pandemic, for example, has brought us an entire cast of actors who pontificate on preventatives and cures to fight the Wuhan virus and who tell us to follow the science. But then again, that science has taken a back seat to a lust for power and self-interest. Jeff Minnick says we are reminded that egoists regard themselves as the elite in the article on the dangers of ego in leadership from the executive training website Cashbox Coaching. He says egoists see themselves as important and all-knowing, and they rely on past accomplishments to bolster their present status. And he says we see the same primacy of the self in less public figures. And this is where it really kind of, this is where the rubber meets the road here. The priest who breaks his vows to pursue sexual pleasure, the mom who decides she needs to leave her husband and children and find herself. Or the guy who's so offended by some innocuous comment on Facebook that he leads the charge to have the writer canceled. Now, of course, a strong sense of self is a positive good. We all possess ambitions and goals. We want money and prestige. We're pleased when someone compliments our children. The healthy ego, the self with all of its complexities and quirks, makes each of us unique individuals. 
And he says, every day I encounter individuals who balance the desires of self with the needs of others, who give of themselves freely and cheerfully to their families, friends, co-workers, and neighbors. Now he says, a cynic might contend they do so from egotism. Look at me! Look what a great guy I am! And there may be a bit of truth in that charge, but generally, he says, what I perceive in them is self-sacrifice. Their needs take a backseat to the needs of others, and generally they seem happier for their altruism. It's when we let slip the reins of control over the self that trouble ensues. For instance, if you Google egotism dangers, you'll find such articles as 11 reasons a huge ego is your worst enemy and five deadly kinds of ego that prey upon your success. Ego, one writer says, is one of the worst poisons. It can be more lethal to our well-being than anything else. Now, Jeff Minnick says when he was teaching, he quickly learned that students could spot baloney faster than flies at a picnic. So he says, I gave up blustering my way past a question that had stumped me. Instead, I'd tell my class, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll try to find out. He says, my self-esteem became less important, and I avoided giving some kid a bogus response. Being honest was also a whole lot easier than trying to skate past tough questions. And so he suggests perhaps what many of us need, especially our leaders, is a strong dose of humility, particularly in regard to our public policy debates. Whether conducted on the national scale or among acquaintances, we might say, as did Socrates, I know that I know nothing. And he says, admitting that we don't know everything is a splendid place to start fighting against the pitfalls of narcissism and an oversized ego. That's pretty good news, I think. I, that's, a, that's a great way to look at it. And I do believe it's, it's probably healthier than what a lot of us tend to do. And I'm including myself in this. Look, I don't like to be wrong. Do you know anybody who does? So... If you want to see the world, you're going to have to be slightly humble in order to see it. But that doesn't mean that you become, you know, this doormat and everybody can just automatically walk over you and wipe their feet on you. But if, like me, you are a person who loves liberty and you want to awake other people's love for liberty, humility will actually open a lot more doors than will a sense of being cocksure. Or a sense of absolute uh, infallibility. I'm never wrong. You can take that to the bank. It makes a good shtick. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I say this with the utmost respect for the memory of Rush Limbaugh. He was a masterful communicator and entertainer. And even behind all of that bombast, it was those occasional glimpses of humility that made his audience really relate to him and love him. But most of your interactions aren't going to take place on the level of, oh, I'm talking about 20 million people at once. It's going to be more one-on-one. That's why humility is so important. And it just starts with admitting, I don't know it all. But at the same time, when you have someone flexing on you, and I'm going to use for an example, you know, um, someone who works in the medical field. And let's just, for the sake of argument, say they ask you, so have you received the vaccine yet? And you answer innocently enough, nah, I just haven't felt like it's the right time. Chances are you're going to get a lecture. And at some point, someone's probably going to appeal to their expertise. Well, you know, when I was in medical school, I learned this and this, and, you know, you should do this, and I've seen this, and I've watched people die of COVID and so forth. It happens. 
And it doesn't mean that you wouldn't want to regard any advice from them whatsoever, but ultimately, no matter how educated they are, no matter how specialized their knowledge may be, the decisions that need to be made about your life are decisions you have to make. Nobody is more qualified than you to make those kind of decisions. And you don't have to apologize anytime you stand up and assert that uh, that's my choice to make. The crazy thing about this is, you know, there, there are people, I'm sure, who are hoping that, oh, you know, all this, this push towards mandatory vaccines and vaccine passports and, you know, the, the directives being handed down by bit different companies. You will be vaccinated or you don't work here. That is, uh, that's a decision that everybody is going to have to make at some point. Will I comply? Just like Rand Paul was saying there in the first segment of the show today, is it, will we reply? Will we comply, rather? Will we resist? And what's crazy is some people here will resist and they immediately think violence. Oh, my gosh, you just want to be violent. It doesn't occur to them that a great deal of nonviolent resistance took place, for instance, along the road to um, civil rights or recognition of everyone's civil rights here in America. Rosa Parks didn't go out there and bash a fash in the face, you know, to, to get her point across. She simply refused to give up her seat when someone told her, hey, you're supposed to do this. She refused to follow their rules as opposed to going out and victimizing people. I'm, I'm sure you understand the difference. But I don't think we can avoid that, uh, that decision. Do I comply? Do I resist? I don't think there's a middle road. And, and frankly, if you look around, you find a little bit of wiggle room. Trust me, they are the, the people who are pushing the vaccine mandates, the people who are pushing the lockdown mentality are looking to close every possible avenue. Oh, yes, we'll still leave a little sliver of, uh, you know, an option. But in the meantime, they are claiming an absolute moral authority to make your life as miserable and unworkable as possible so that you will do what they're telling you. And it's okay if you if you feel a little spike of anger, you feel, feel your blood pressure kind of, you know, peak for, their, for a moment. That's good. <laughs> that means you're paying attention. That means, okay, you get it. One of the things we have to understand about people who will use government to try to get things accomplished that they want accomplished, especially forcing you to do what they know is right, is that it's in the nature of government to grow. Always has been. It's in its DNA. And this is something that was well understood by the founding generation. It's why our system of government was designed to limit and to check government growth before it could metastasize like cancer and become something either authoritarian or totalitarian. There's a terrific article on everythingvoluntary.com from Sheldon Richman. Why wouldn't government grow? I really like his take on this. He says, one of the most, or one of the least mysterious things in life is why the government grows. In fact, he says the better question is why it ever shrinks. People who devote lots of time to thinking about the importance of individual liberty know that government is inimical to human flourishing. So they notice every sign of state growth. But most people rarely, if ever, focus on liberty or government per se because they understandably are busy with the usual cares and aspirations of life. Even if they occasionally sense that something ominous is afoot, they can do little about it. 
They might as well attend to things that are more under their control. Besides, most people believe what they were brought up to believe by their parents and their teachers. Namely, that the U.S. government system embodies liberty because the people govern themselves through representatives they have chosen. So when they complain about the government, their ire is typically directed at specific bad apples or even a bad regime. But he says they're rarely mad at the system itself. All will be right when good people replace the bad. But when replacements occur, we don't see significant reductions in the power and scope of the state. Things are bad enough with domestic policy, but much worse with foreign policy. And he says the picture is bleak indeed. Meanwhile, people in power have a general interest in increasing that power, not to mention their wealth and prestige. So with rare exceptions, they are accelerators of, not breaks on, the growth of government power. The Public Choice School of Political Economy focuses on the incentives for the growth of government. Sometimes a political figure touts his or her preference for less power in a particular matter, whether it's sincerely or not, but such a figure usually favors more power in other matters. Sheldon Richmond says over the years, the number of politicians who've actually wanted less government across the board has been depressingly small. He says those in power are supported in their quest for more by an array or by an array of private interests who hope to gain by the exercise of that power. Lots of people are unsatisfied with the gains that they could make through purely voluntary exchange. So they seek to augment them with the help of politicians and bureaucrats and at the expense of others. Now, these rent seekers may not think of this as violating other people's freedom because they believe, like nearly everybody else, that this is what a self-governing people may properly do. It's as though the state were the governing body of a voluntary service organization. Members vote on what policies they want, and then they go along with the majority decision. Now, Sheldon Richmond says that's how most people view the situation, but he reminds us the state is not such an organization. It's a force-wielding wealth transfer machine with a dash of security services for public appeal. The role of court ideologues, the government schools, and the mass media is to tell the people how good and indispensable the government is. In fact, the state is the consequence of conquest. No one ever explicitly consented to it. It's impossible to opt out, that is, while staying put. How can anyone withdraw consent never given? And if one cannot, if one cannot not consent, then what does it even mean to consent? And he actually links in the article to a, uh, an article by Charlie, Charles Johnson, Can Anyone Ever Consent to the State? So, Sheldon Richmond says, As Jefferson noted, the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. Now, that doesn't mean a specific power can't be rolled back on occasion. We've seen the removal of legal barriers to racial integration, marijuana possession, gay marriage, and other legitimate activities. But, he says, despite this, it's hard to see a significant reduction in power in recent times. The Invasive Patriot Act is nearly 20 years old and has been reauthorized more than once. The politicians used the pandemic to justify extraordinary and alarming interference with our liberty. New powers are in the offing, such as regulation of social media companies. Now, he poses the thought here, does this mean there's nothing left to do but despair? Well, he says, I have no easy answers, but let's hope not. 
The fight for liberty is the noblest fight. And we must find ways to kindle the love of liberty in others. I like that. Doesn't that sound better than just, you know, we should beat them to smithereens and make them agree with us? Although I know it's tempting at times <laughs> to take the latter approach. But if you, if you want to get people to do something, if you really want to see something that is driven by real virtue, an authentic change of thinking, change of heart, it's got to be voluntary. It has to be something they voluntarily come to on their own terms. A little something to think about next time, you know, you want to light somebody up online on social media or something or put them in their place because they have held a, a contrary point of view. I get it. There are people out there trolling. In fact, let me, I'm going to take a quick tangent here for just a moment. Let's talk about trolls. Let's talk about people who just live to try to get somebody to fight them online. Now, I'm sad to tell you, I'm speaking from experience. I have, I have spent more than enough time trolling online and, uh, and working people up into a tizzy. And, and I'll admit, at the time, it actually felt pretty good. It seemed like, well, this isn't such a bad thing. But I grew up eventually. And I came to the point that I realized this is really accomplishing nothing of lasting value. And so I'm speaking from experience when I tell you it feels good sometimes to lash out at people. It feels good sometimes to let that, uh, that frustration and that contempt just flow for somebody else and to put them in their place. But I, I have to caution you. If you're serious about helping people discover a love for liberty, strong enough and pure enough that they are actually willing to sacrifice, maybe even suffer for their beliefs in order to, to act on that love of liberty, you got to bring that message to them in a way that they have the final say as whether or not to accept it. You will not beat it into them. Think about this. When's the last time you changed your mind because someone was rude to you or was unkind? No, it's okay. I'll wait. I know. <laughs> I, I've sat and tried to think about that too. Now, that doesn't mean I haven't had my attitude adjusted, you know, being reprimanded by an adult when I was a kid or by a teacher, a principal or something like that. That's not the same thing, though. We're talking about something a little bit higher than being called out for bad behavior and deciding to, you know, change what you're doing. I'm talking about something much more substantive, as in encountering new truth, recognizing it, and realizing that by recognizing and acknowledging this truth, I have to make some adjustments in not only how I see the world, but how I act within that knowledge. That's the kind of stuff that has to come from within. It can't be forced on a person. It cannot be intimidated into their being. But when they make that decision themselves, it'll become a part of who they are. And a person who was, you know, well, yeah, liberty's a good idea. It's, you know, it's not bad, but, you know, they don't really have that strong sense of commitment when they come to the understanding that, no, this is not only a great thing, it's not only a great idea, but maybe they see it as this is one of the greatest gifts that my creator has ever given me, and I will not treat it lightly. That's the difference between a person who's like, oh, well, yeah, it's a good idea, and someone who will actually go out there and peacefully and persuasively evangelize for that idea. I hope that makes sense. 
in my head it makes sense, but I, I'll grant you what's going on in my head may or may not uh, resonate with everybody else. So it's okay if you if you don't agree. I am going to bring up one final article here from J.D. Tusil. This is from Reason.com. And I think he addresses something here that a lot of people are feeling right now, and that is the choice before us is do we go back into pandemic control mode, fear in everybody's eyes, masks on every face, or is this the time to stand up and say, look, we've seen what works and what doesn't. Let this virus run its course through the population. Now, I don't say that lightly. People who say, oh, so you just want to do nothing, just let people die. You need to understand that we're talking about a virus that, at least according to the latest statistics I've seen from, you know, credible health authorities who don't seem to be spinning it for advantage, is that 99.7% of the people who contract, in other words, who are infected with the coronavirus, will survive it. The people who are at risk, and it will kill some people, most generally are people at the end of their lives. They're either over 70 or 80 years of age, particularly over 80 years of age. They have one or more comorbidities, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, other things that have compromised their body's ability to fight off an illness. So why should we be so terrified of something like this? I don't know if you knew this, but in Iceland over the weekend, there was a spike in COVID cases, positive tests. Now, Iceland, being an island, is also a very well-vaccinated population. I can't remember the exact statistics, but it was it was upwards of 80%. A huge amount of their population had received the vaccinations, both of them, and were fully vaccinated. And yet they had a day last weekend, which would have been the equivalent of uh, the U.S. having 100,000 cases in a single day. It was a lot. And you know what the state epidemiologist in Iceland did? He looked at the reality, saw it for what it was, put his hands up in the air and said, okay, the virus is outpacing the vaccine. He says, at this point, the best we can do is let the virus run its course through the population and protect the vulnerable. So, okay, he's not saying do nothing. Protect the vulnerable but let the virus run its course, which is what the virus is going to do anyway, regardless of public health concerns, regardless of who signed this proclamation or made this executive order. The quicker it does make its way through the population, the quicker herd immunity will be achieved through that 99.7% of people who survive the infection and then have the antibodies to fight it off in the future. I know, there's all the talk of the variants, the mutations, and so forth. But I would ask you to keep in mind, this is how pandemics were addressed before. This is a hundred years of information and medical knowledge in dealing with pandemics. So it's not like, well, we've never tried that before. It's been done before, and it works. What we hadn't done before was shut down Huge swaths of the economy encourage everybody to walk around like there's some kind of a sick person with a, you know, rag on their face. We presume that everybody is sick and everybody's a carrier of this disease. That's what's new. And unless you've been sitting in a cave with your eyes tightly shut and your hands over your ears chanting to yourself for the last 18 months, 
you may have noticed some of the people in power have actually run with this fear and used it to consolidate power over the populace in an incredible degree. I don't mean that to compliment them. I mean like a frighteningly incredible degree. So JD2Seal says, don't surrender to the, the pandemic control freaks. He says, when exactly do we get to return to normal life? Is it when every single person is vaccinated? Is it when lockdowns finally demonstrate any effectiveness at fighting COVID-19? When we've driven all of our kids nuts and small businesses bankrupt with restrictions? When disease is completely eradicated around the time the sun sputters out? Or will it be when the pajama class is finally bored with lording it over the rest of society and decides it's time to come up for air? It's a question requiring an answer as our lords and masters show every inclination to once again tighten the screws to address a never-ending public health emergency. He says a year and a half into the pandemic, Americans 12 and older, every American 12 and older who cares to be vaccinated against COVID-19 has had the opportunity to get a shot. Now that's important because all the available vaccines are extremely effective at reducing the dangers of infection for their recipients. Now, he cites the Centers for Disease Control saying all authorized COVID-19 vaccines demonstrated high efficacy. We're talking, you know, plus or minus 89% against COVID-19 severe enough to require hospitalization. In the clinical trials, no participants who received a COVID-19 vaccine died from COVID-19. So JD2Seal says that's about as much assurance as you can ask of a world that offers no guarantees of safety. Epidemiologists have warned for months that COVID-19 is probably a permanent part of our lives, so we need to tolerate it as one risk among many. Here's a July news piece from the Medical University of South Carolina, Dr. Michael Sweat. The pandemic seems to be shifting to an endemic situation, meaning the virus could remain a constant presence. We'll have to figure out how to live with it, I think. So we can get on with our lives, right? Asks J.D. Tusil. After all, we have a lot of digging out to do. Millions of children lost a year of education and struggled with mental health issues. Jobs and businesses evaporated as the world sheltered in place, usually by command of the powers that be. And fundamental human liberty took a body blow from which it may never recover when the political class took advantage of public fear to expand its power, not just in traditionally authoritarian countries, but even in nominally liberal ones. Freedom House observed as COVID-19 spread during the year, governments across the democratic spectrum repeatedly resorted to excessive surveillance, discriminatory restrictions on freedoms like movement and assembly, and arbitrary or violent enforcement of such restrictions by police and non-state actors. Worse, says J.D. Tusil, we sacrificed liberty, prosperity, and our children's sanity for little in the way of good reason. According to University of Chicago researchers, we find that shelter-in-place orders had no detectable health benefits, only modest effects on behavior, and small but adverse effects on the economy. So once again, vaccination is widely available in the United States. The unvaccinated have chosen that status. They've made their decisions. They've assumed the resulting dangers, just like people who smoke, eat too much, ride motorcycles, or go rock climbing. In a free society, people have the right to make their own risk assessment, assessments, rather, even if others don't approve. And the rest of us should get to live our lives without limiting ourselves because of the decisions made by others.
J.D. Tusil says COVID-19 has been an unpleasant ordeal for the entire planet, but perhaps not so awful as the policies inflicted on us in the name of public health. He says it's time to move beyond pandemic panic to rebuild our prosperity, raise our kids, and reclaim our freedom. And if the control freaks don't like that, well, he says, then they're another affliction that we can do without. So as I understand it, and I admittedly could be limited in my understanding here, the key is to stand up against the control freaks who want to control your life and your decisions without becoming a control freak in the process. Good luck. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network.